You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Sweden in Focus, the locals podcast looking back at the week's main news in Sweden. Uh, we usually record on Thursdays, but as there's a holiday this week, we're recording this on Wednesday, May the 26th. Later on the show, we're going to talk about Sweden's famously flat workplace hierarchies and whether they're conducive to actually getting stuff done. We'll also discuss Swedish attitudes to alcohol. We'll explore the Swedish media landscape and we'll have a brief progress report on Sweden's NATO application. I'm Paul O'Mahony and with James Savage away this week, I'm on my own in the Stockholm studio. But I'm lucky enough to be joined for today's podcast by David Crouch in Gothenburg and Richard Orange and Becky Waterton in Malmö. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. Now, David, welcome to the podcast. Really good to have you on here. You are a regular contributor to The Local and you've also written a book about how Sweden works called Almost Perfect. What else should we know about you? Oh, thanks, uh, Paul. Well, I'm a, I'm a Brit. Uh, I'm a journalist. I've been in Sweden now for almost nine years, which is a bit scary. And uh, I think I bring a much needed uh, representation to, to the pod uh, of Gothenburg, which is Sweden's finest city, as you all know. <laughs> Not sure Mama would agree with that. What does Gothenburg have going for it, David? The thing I like about it is it's got a city feel to it, but it's actually quite small. So I live in a, a little leafy village outside the city but um, on my bicycle I can be right in the centre just in in 30 minutes so it's uh, just easy to get around. Good you're not going to hear any arguments from me I actually spend a lot of time in in Gothenburg and like it quite a lot. What about Malmö? Have we talked about Malmö before? What's what's good about Malmö? Well you know Malmö's just got a city feel but it's a small town and you know I can I can cycle around so easily so it's completely different from Gothenburg you know (laughs) absolutely not the same. But no, yeah, Mama's also got that kind of going for it, that you have everything you want without it being overwhelmingly large. And then if you ever don't have anything you want, you can just go and get the train to Copenhagen and you've got a capital city half an hour away, which is nice. Good stuff. Stockholm's not bad either, I have to say. Um, is everybody happy enough with David's credentials? Can he stay? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's never get James back. <laughs> Last week, we uh, talked about how Turkey threw a spanner in the works when President Erdogan announced his country would not ratify Sweden's application to NATO. What's the latest on that, Richard? Well, yesterday, uh, Turkey sort of published uh, Saturday demands on its on its website and also sort of tweeted it out in about 11 different languages, including Russian, which I found a bit strange. And those were more or less what we knew already. They wanted concrete assurances from Sweden, who they accused of supporting terrorist organisations. And one thing that was interesting is they referred to PKK 
slash PYD, which is PYD is the political party that dominates in the autonomous region of the Kurdish autonomous region of Syria. So they completely conflated that in their statements, which which does make it a little bit difficult for Sweden to then go back and go, no, but these are two separate entities. And this one is not terrorist. And this one is terrorist, because right from the get go, they're saying this is one entity. And that probably isn't the best starting point for for negotiations. But but one thing that was, and they also highlighted the money that Sweden's given to the the government in the Kurdish region of Syria, and they also talked about the arms embargo that Sweden placed on Turkey when it started fighting against Syrians in northern Syria as well in 2019, and then it re- reiterated the call to extradite people it called terrorists linked to the PKK, PYD and also to the Gulen movement. Um, so it's pretty much what was expected. Over the weekend, Magdalene Anderson had a phone conversation with President Erdogan, which again, after that phone conversation, Erdogan came out once again with all of these demands and Anderson sort of came out with platitudes about how important it is to fight terrorism, but didn't actually, in her statements after the call, didn't, didn't talk about any of the specific points that Turkey's been raising. Interesting, yeah. And has Turkey singled Sweden out here or is Finland being subject to the same treatment? I think it's pretty clear that Sweden is the target. And it seems like Anne Linde, the the Swedish uh, foreign minister, is particularly a target. And this is something I didn't know about, but a few years ago, she held a joint press conference with Turkey's foreign minister, which which was really tense. And this was around 2019 when the Turks had started fighting in northern Syria. And she was... you know, hard demands to pull out and it got very heated. And since then, apparently in the Turkish media, people know who Anne Lind is. People know about this. This is a very live issue for Turkey. And in December, she met the Kurdish government, the PYD. So, and at that time, I suppose... Sweden didn't know it was going to join NATO, so, so it didn't didn't realise. She even tweeted a picture of them and wrote something like wrote her support for them. So it's not that she's been like she's been very open with this. They've been a very open backer of the PID, and and also Sweden's defence minister Peter Hulkvist was on this list that a think tank leaked to the linked to the Swedish ruling party put out a list of uh, European politicians that were seen as PKK sympathisers. You mean the Turkish ruling party? Yeah, Yeah. sorry, the (laughs) Turkish ruling party. They put out a list of people seen as PKK sympathisers and and Sweden's defence minister Peter Hawkins was on that list. So so this is something that I think has been important for Turkey for a long time, but it's just something that hasn't been in the the Swedish media. So we haven't realised that Turkey has this Sweden problem. A big thank you to everyone who has taken our survey so far. We do really want to hear from as many listeners as possible. So if you can, please visit the link in the episode description on your app. We're going to turn now to alcohol. And I know this is something you're writing about at the moment, David. One thing you're looking at is a study comparing Nordic countries. What is the study and what do the results tell us about Swedish attitudes to alcohol? Well, it's an annual study by uh, IQ, which is owned by Systembolaget, the state-owned chain of uh, of liquor stores in Sweden. But this year it's different because they've compared attitudes to alcohol in four Nordic countries, in Denmark, uh, Norway, Finland, Sweden. And one, some interesting things come out of it. Obviously, you know, with statistics you're generalising, and I think individual attitudes do vary, but Sweden does come out as being clearly more kind of cautious or or uptight about alcohol than the other 
Nordic countries. Just one example which struck me was that only half of, uh, well, actually, it's, it's well under half of Swedish people, 45%, say that it's okay to occasionally get drunk, which given the number of times that I have been drunk during my lifetime, that's uh, that was a really surprising um, uh, statistic. You use the word uptight, um, David. Might Swedes prefer to call it responsible, do you think? Yes, I'm sure they would use the word responsible. And that word sort of permeates so much of the discussion around alcohol in, in Sweden. But at the same time, I think there's a fair bit of hypocrisy in all this. In my own experience, if you want to get a, a social gathering going in Sweden, the, the best way to do it is to uncork the gin and let it flow liberally. Uh, and uh, Swedes enjoy um, alcohol just as, as much as anybody else in Europe, possibly even even more so. And yet there is this semi-official sort of national guilt about uh, alcohol, which is embodied, if you like, in the state alcohol monopoly, the aim of which is to control and keep down alcohol uh, alcohol consumption. And where, where does this guilt come from? Well, um, it has deep historical roots in that about 100 years ago, Sweden had a serious alcohol problem. Um, really, the statistics on consumption, on vodka consumption, are really quite scary. And for decades, the country str- struggled to... Uh, to reduce um, mm. alcohol consumption until they hit on the idea of a, of a state monopoly in 19, 1955. Uh, but that deep-rooted uh, attitude is expressed in all sorts of ways. So Sweden, which is, you know, has this reputation of being a very modern, liberal country, which is in love with its personal freedoms, actually has a, a very significant temperance movement, with, yeah. which has more more members than most of Sweden's political parties and uh, quite a lot of influence. I think also, it's, I think a lot of people, I only came to Sweden two years ago, so I think a lot of people maybe don't know about the history of sustainable log. Uh, you used to have a, a ration book that you could only go in and buy a certain amount of alcohol a week and they came and kind of stamped the book so they could see how much you'd bought. There was like a ban on buying alcohol if you were a registered alcoholic. So some people were completely banned from buying alcohol. It was like a pharmacy. There was no self-service. You had to go in and this is why they've got those little numbers when you go into sustainable markets. You had to go in and say the number of the of what you wanted and they go and get it out of a cabinet for you. So my, my husband's from Skrnau, which actually had the last counter service sustainable lager in the whole country. So there was a bottle of vodka that was referred to as a halvbay, like a half bow, because it was kept under the desk. So the person that was serving you had to go and half bow under the desk to get it for you. So I think that's also kind of... <laughs> Sustainable Lager has adapted and it's become a lot more liberal. Just even the idea of self-service alcohol in Sustainable Lager was, was kind of revolutionary. So I think if you if you kind of know the history of what it used to be like, it's, you're like, wow, okay, so they actually ended up letting people choose their own alcohol and all of this. I think it, that also kind of gives a bit of important context. I mean, my, my wife's family are from northern Sweden, sort of working class, and they all grew up within this temperance movement, both of her parents. They were still completely teetotal until their 30s or something. And now, you know, they drink boxes of wine like everyone else, but they still drink very sparingly. So when I when I got married to my wife, I've sort of had all of these, um, loads of people came at first when we were buying the alcohol, they were like, well, you need maybe half a bottle of wine a person. I'm like, what? make that like two bottles of wine a person. What, what are you on? And then when, when we had the reception, 
which was a sort of in this lovely seaside town in north of Stockholm. And um, suddenly my friends came up and went, there's something wrong. There's, the champagne stopped. You know, so then I went and found the people we had serving. And they said, no, well, your, your mother-in-law said that it should only be one glass per person. And I'm like... Just bring it out. She, she, she thinks people might get drunk, and I'm like, the, the people should get drunk. I mean, that's the whole point. And, yeah, and, and, and it was this, this clash of um, attitudes to alcohol. She thought that everyone should be very measured, should only have one glass of a person. No one should get noticeably drunk in the wedding. And, you know, I think, you know, when, when people arrive at a wedding, you want them slightly tipsy straight away. Your mother-in-law, according to this survey, which came out just a f- couple of months ago, your mother-in-law is in good company and uh, well over one in five Swedes say that it's wrong to get drunk at a party. And that figure is much higher, significantly higher amongst women. But as a Brit and coming from a country which has an alcohol problem, you know, it has problems with, uh, if you go into any town centre on a Friday or Saturday night, you can see that the country has an alcohol problem. I, in theory, I can totally get the, the, the Sweden's very unusual approach to, uh, to, to alcohol. In theory, I can see that it's different. It's a different sort of product and it should be regulated. And there is a, this is an example of society kind of taking resp- overall responsibility for um, a product which can cause a lot of, of harm, a lot of costly harm as well when you think about the cost to the, the health surface and so on. It's in practice where I, I get so... Well, don't get me started about Sistian I, I, I just No, no, let's get started. Let's get <laughs> me started. I find that just the, it just is sort of so ridden with, with guilt. The, the thing that gets me, one of, one of the many things that gets me is the little boxes, the big boxes you find at the checkout, um, which are called ångravagnen from the verb ångra, to regret. There's regret boxes. And there's a little sign above them which says, are you regret? Do you want to change your mind? Do you regret what you've bought? Are you sure you're not going to hate yourself if you don't put one or two of those bottles back in this box? Um, and uh, they don't serve any useful purpose because they're almost always empty. The, the point is that there's a message that the whole store is... is sending consistently in, in all, all, all of it, the way that it's organized and presented. And that is that alcohol is a bad thing and you should really think hard about using it. And Becky, you've been looking at another recent study that showed that Sustainable is the most popular company in Sweden ahead of Volvo, Ica and IKEA. Why is Sustainable so well liked? I think so. so the people I spoke to, I, I kind of asked every Swede I knew and the, the ones who got back to me, it was very, very obvious that everyone said that the service is good. So that, that was the most common thing people said, that the service is very high quality. You can go in, you can ask like, oh, I bought this wine last week and I liked that. Do you have anything that's similar? Or, oh, I'm looking for a, a wine from Georgia. Have you got any of them? And that someone will come and help you find something. And if they don't have it, you can order it in especially. And... A lot of people also said that... So, so my husband made the point of you can buy a bottle of wine in Sustainable Lager for, let's say, 70 kroner. And you can ask the person in the Sustainable Lager, OK, what, what kind of food is this going to fit with? 
uh, I'm having lamb for dinner. Is this going to suit that? And they go, oh, no, I'd recommend this, blah, blah, blah. And then in Denmark, for example, if you wanted that service, it's not like you can just go into the, your local supermarket and ask the teenagers sacking the shelves, oh, is this is this wine going to pass with the lamb dish I'm having for dinner? Obviously, they're not going to know the answer to that. So if you want the same standard of service, you go to a, a wine shop, but then you'll be paying double the price for the wine because you're like, service is kind of kind of included in the cost of the wine in Denmark mm. and then obviously if you buy something so say you bought you bought three bottles of wine and they're all the same wine you drank one of them you're like oh I don't really like this you can go back to sustainable Logic with an unopened bottle of alcohol you don't need a receipt and you can just give it back to them and get the money back which mm. I think is a great kind of function especially if you're having a party and you buy alcohol for everybody and then some of it maybe doesn't get drunk you can just you can just go back to sustainable lager and hand it in again without the receipt and get all the money back which is something i think is really good my uh father-in-law was saying that it feels like they've got a high standard it feels like they they kind of only stock things that are good quality that you're not you're not getting any like just anything you're getting things that they've tested and they know that are good but then like some of my other friends are saying that one of the problems with sustainable lager is that they don't stock everything. So like if you're interested in natural wine, for example, sustainable Logit don't really do that. So it's probably something you're going to have to order in from abroad if that's if that's an interest that you've got or go to a wine bar and buy there. If you travel to a distillery or something and you ask, oh, can I buy a bottle of your gin? It's like, well, no, you can drink it in our in our bar or you can go to sustainable Logit, which is something I really noticed when I was on VM in um, it's the little island kind of near Landskrona and Denmark in the Orison. And we went to Spirit of Vian, which is like a, a whiskey distillery. And I thought, oh, my, my my dad loves whiskey. Maybe I'll get my bottle of whiskey. And then I suddenly realized, of, of course, I can't get a bottle of whiskey. There's no sustainable logit on this whole island. If I want to buy something to take home from this distillery, I have to get a bus and then a ferry and then a train into Landskrona just to go to that sustainable logit to buy the same thing which they literally produce here. That's the other thing, is that there are so few sustainable logit stores. Um, until very recently, I think just a year or two ago, there were more golf courses in Sweden than uh, shops where you could buy a bottle of wine over the counter. Uh, it's one sustainable logit store for every 23,000 um, in the population. So it, it's made very, very hard to, to get alcohol. At the end of the at the bottom line, though, is you're absolutely right, Becky. That it works. People like it. It seems to have all these oddities and, and contradictions and things we don't like, but it it does actually work for Swedish society. And I remember Richard said at the end of the last pod that with Sweden abandoning its its non-alignment, uh, it seems like the country has become. Uh, just the same as anywhere else in, in Europe. But I would say that Sistian Bolaget is a, as an example of this, of, of, a, of a, a very Swedish approach to the relationship between society and the economy, which is still still alive uh, in institutions like Sistian Bolaget. It, it does feel like we could talk about this like literally all day. I, we could literally do a whole podcast on this. Yeah, easy. I think maybe we should do a, a, a podcast when actually drunk. That would be quite <laughs> Becky, you've been looking at the Swedish newspaper landscape this week. Can you tell us, first of all, what the difference is between a morontidning and a kvällstidning? A morontidning is basically a broadsheet and a kvällstidning is a tabloid. So morontidning means morning newspaper and a kvällstidning is an evening newspaper. But like the reason they have these names is that a morontidning was written and printed at night to be on your doorstep in the morning because you had a subscription to it. And then a kvällstidning was written during the day and then printed 
during the day so you'd get it in the evening or in the yeah, at night. Can you give us a few examples of, of uh, Morant evenings and Kvelst evenings? So the most popular Morant evening, if we're looking on kind of a Riksnivå, so like the of like a countrywide level, would be SVD and DN. So that's Svenska Dagbladet and Dagens Nyheter. And then the most popular kvällstidning are also kind of Sweden-wide. That's Aftonbladet and Expressen. But also regional newspapers are a really big thing in Sweden. So I would say most of the people I know in, in Skåne, where I live, who have a newspaper subscription, they don't subscribe to DN, they subscribe to Sydsvenskan, which is our kind of regional regional broadsheet, regional morgontidning. Yeah, is there is there an explanation for why uh, regional newspapers are quite strong in, in Sweden? Or how do they survive financially? I think part of it is uh, Prestad, which is uh, money that the government gives, has historically since the 1970s given to newspapers that are in struggling markets, although it doesn't make up much of financing anymore. Um, and also VAT on printed papers for a long time was 6% rather than 25%. And I think in 2019 that got extended to digital papers as well. So VAT is lower and then you've got this press support, which makes it easier for the newspapers to, to work financially. David, is, is that your experience in Gothenburg that a lot of people subscribe to Göteborgs Posten? Yes, very much so. There is a, a sort of loyalty, I think, to the the regional paper, which does some great journalism but would have struggled to survive had it not been for the significant support it's had from the the state. And similarly, I was talking to the editor of Borås Tidning just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Borås is a um, another major town not far from Gothenburg. And, uh, and he said, you know, we wouldn't have got through the shift to the internet and, and so on had it not been for the the state. And that really made me made me think. I think it's a actually a healthy thing in the in the sense that again Swedish society kind of appreciates that th- that uh, news is is a different. It, it's different from ordinary commodities um, mm. like alcohol, and therefore it has to be regulated in a different way. And there's more sense of public service in the media and in journalism in Sweden as a result. Mm. I was speaking to the, Maria Gassetti, who's a researcher at Gothenburg University, and she said that one thing that's really striking about the Swedish media is how if you look at the stories that are published in all the papers every day, they tend to cover the same main stories every day, and there's less variation than there is in most countries' media. Sweden, is a, it's again, as a consensus society, there's a sort of, everyone sort of agrees, and it's often set by... TT or ERCOT, you know, or, or, or the calendar, the government's calendar. There's a sort of almost a consensus amongst news editors as to what are the big stories of the day. If you just ex- explain to people who might not be aware what um, TT is and its role in the media environment. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. The, TT is the sort of the main and I suppose really the only newswire. They have a lot of reporters and they cover up in, in, in all the regions and they cover most of the stories and they also take most of the photographs. But they also have quite a forward-looking thing. They have a calendar which sort of plots the day's stories ahead. And I think a lot of people have that in mind when they're planning what we're going to do next week and what, what what's what's going on. So there's more of a consensus as to what are the stories coming up and what is the news calendar. Now on to the main topic for today, where we're going to shine a light on organisational culture in the Swedish workplace, and in particular, the style of leadership characterised by so-called flat hierarchies that is often said to predominate here. 
To find out whether that's actually the case, I spoke yesterday to Pernilla Petrelius Carlbe, a lecturer at the Stockholm School of Economics and a researcher at the Centre for Responsible Leadership. And I started by asking her if Sweden does in fact have a distinctive management style. And I should mention that um, when I spoke to her, she was in a cafe, so there will be a little bit of background noise. Uh, I think the core of what we, we talk about when we talk about uh, Swedish leadership is the fact that leaders and managers um, offer co-workers to, to, to take ownership uh, in the task and in, and in the business and running the business. It's even expected. Uh, and also co-workers uh, take that ownership. Uh, they, they engage and they take responsibility for the outcome and the result. Uh, so it's not, it's the total opposite to micromanagement in that sense. It's also reflected in, in what we expect from managers. So in a, in a sort of, if you generalize in a, in a Swedish setting, if there is a meeting with the boss, uh, the co-workers will be, expect to be listened to and to be involved in a conversation and give their opinion on things. And that is also a way to, to, to motivate people. When can a decision be said to have been taken in a Swedish workplace environment? It, it's um, in, in a way, it's a, it's, it's a different process, which often involves a calculated or a plan for taking time, for, for introducing the decision, for discussing it, for f- making people feel that they have been involved, informed, engaged. So in a sense, the decisions uh, are in that sense taken in a much more informal way and can be more difficult to sort of pinpoint exactly when that was decided. And we also saw that during the pandemic that the typical the Swedish organization, which is very non-hierarchical, suffered a lot because a lot of leadership was actually practiced in the non-formal or informal work environment. And when people were taken away from that environment, because suddenly they were working from home, they were sort of, you know, how do we practice leadership now? Whereas in an organization with much uh, sort of clear hierarchy, it was never an issue where the decisions were made or, 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 or how leadership was practiced because it was done in a different way. Is it an effective leadership style? I would say it is, yes. Uh, and we stand out as a, as a nation. We stand out pretty well when it comes to different types of uh, national measurements of, of uh, competitiveness, etc. So we, we score quite high on that. And you presumably have students who come from different cultures. Do you see that people find it difficult to adapt to the Swedish style? It can be quite a shock, uh, of course. Uh, but I do think that um, at least the one that I meet, uh, and maybe that's because they're still around, they, they, they appreciate it. They like it. And uh, especially on our, the, our young students who want to, to, to play a bigger part and take a lot of responsibility at an early stage, this can be a very good environment for them to, to explore. I do see also, of course, that some people sort of, they have to sit on their hands and they just tell themselves that this is Sweden and now I just have to sit and wait and, and let them talk this through, even though it's, it's very, very frustrating. What is it that's so frustrating? Is it that they just want to be told what to do? Or tell what to do. This is how we're going to do it. I already thought it through. It's a great idea and uh, it's practiced everywhere else and uh, you're going to come to the same conclusion. It's just going to take you forever to talk it through. 
That was Pernilla Petralius Carlberg giving her thoughts on the consensus-based style of Swedish leadership. Now, David, you interviewed quite a lot of foreigners in Sweden about this for your book. What did people tell you about how the Swedish approach compared to management styles in their home countries? Yes, I tried to speak to foreign business figures with experience, obviously, abroad, but also of uh, doing business here in Sweden. But also, I, I tried to talk to Swedish business figures who had uh, been abroad and tried to set up companies abroad, particularly in the United States, just to get some idea of, of the contrast between how business is done in uh, here in Sweden and uh, and in other countries. And it's obviously, it, it's hard to generalize because uh, every workplace is different and individuals have different you know, management styles. But certainly a, a pattern seemed to emerge that a much greater stress is put on individual initiative in Sweden rather than ordering people about and, and managing them in, in a very hands-on, direct uh, way. And Swedish business people complained with, that when they're in the States, uh, American employees just will sit around and do nothing until they're given uh, orders and they don't expect to to criticize or discuss whereas there's a healthier uh, culture of answering back um of saying well maybe that's not the right way to do it and particularly in sophisticated high tech companies where employees have phd's you know they they, they read daily newspapers you can't expect um a ceo to be absolutely across everything that's happening in that company they need to uh they need to encourage employees to take initiative and to be um proactive uh, and forward thinking and in that sense um a flat hierarchy and um a workplace culture in which the the, the manager is is not uh, giving orders left right and center is a, is a very sensible way a very effective way of running a business. Yeah, I think I definitely noticed this. Uh, so I, I've only worked for the local in Sweden, but when I worked in Denmark, I had a Swedish boss. Um, but previous to that Swedish boss, I had a German boss and I could really see the difference in the German and Swedish management styles where my German boss, you know, this is probably a stereotype, but they, they definitely both kind of fit these stereotypes. Uh, my German boss, it was very much like, this is what we're doing. This is how we do it. And if you don't know what to do, talk to your direct superior. And then the Swedish boss, it was like, oh, I, I'm not entirely sure how we should do this. Why don't we call a meeting with everyone in the department who's going to be working this project and we'll all discuss it and you can come with your comments. And I'm definitely not the expert on this. So come on, guys, let's have a consensus on this. IKEA made a, um, a splash in in Germany in particular when it, it brought its its Swedish management style into Germany in the 1980s, I think it was, where they did away with ties, um, which was a big deal for uh, managers uh, not, not to wear a suit and tie on the, the shop floor. Uh, managers were on first name terms with all the, uh, the staff as well. And it became a recruiting tool, an effective recruiting tool for IKEA to, to, to say, to uh, to Germans um, come and, and, and work for us and experience this egalitarian Swedish workplace culture. I know uh, there's a lot of academic effort has gone into trying to pin down 
what this Swedish management style is. And I'm not aware that anybody has kind of written the book on the Swedish management style. It's sort of something that has emerged out of a, a historical conjuncture in, in, in Sweden, thanks to the unions having such a, an, an incredibly powerful voice in the workplace over over many decades. And it seems to me almost as though Swedish business has made a virtue out of necessity by recognising that employees need, need to have a, have a voice and it actually can be very beneficial to the, the, the business. And I came across um, the Swedish concept of medarbeterskap, which is translated as employeeship which is a, a concept, a very much a Swedish concept. It's not being discussed in the um, in a non-Swedish uh, economics literature very much. But the the idea is that you create a culture of uh, of of initiative and employeeship, where you, the employee takes on a responsibility for the business. Is is it? There's um that's the other side of um. That's what you're expected to give in return for having this kind of liberal and open relationship with uh, senior senior management. And so, yeah, Medarbetaskap seems to at least put a, a formal academic name mm-hmm. on on something that we're sometimes struggling to to describe or to understand. In general, I think that because there's sort of less overt competition people don't work as hard they're not as it's not as kind of high tempo and high energy as in you know a dynamic american workplace but there's so much effort that is wasted in the uk in a lot of uk offices just kind of fighting internal battles against your sort of your 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 office rival and you know trying to get that to justify your bonus in a bank or something like that and, it, and and there's so much less of that in Sweden people are so much more focused on doing just doing their job I, I I feel and like you say there's so much human capital goes to waste it doesn't go to waste in Sweden that it sort of makes up for the fact that there's maybe less kind of energy and dynamism I think that's a really good point yeah you can actually focus on your job if you know yeah, if you know that you can speak, you don't have to kind of think, oh, how am I going to break this to my boss that I think that this is a bad way of doing things? And maybe you can be more efficient because everyone who has a possible idea can come to the table with their idea. It's not based on what your job title is. It's based on whether you've got any good ideas. And then you can come and say, if you you, it, you can go up to your boss and say, hey, I don't think this is a good way that we're doing this. Here's another suggestion without being worried that it's going to backfire. I did an article on, on office politics in Sweden, you know, because it's, it's not utopia. You know, there is still competition between employees. And, and people said that they found that what annoyed them most is that rather than take a conflict face to face, you know, for even minor conflicts like who's eating the fruit or <laughs> who's eating too many fruit in the, co- in the office fruit bowl, people would go directly up to the superior and 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 this was a superior who was going it drives me crazy i feel like i'm running a kindergarten because my employees are constantly coming up with these minor complaints which i'm expected to get involved with and i have to sort of micromanage all of these sort of disputes that no one will take face to face uh, which is maybe the disadvantage of the flat hierarchy that, that there is there isn't such a you know I would have been terrified of going to any of my bosses in the UK with yeah they'd be like sort it sort it out yourself I'm yeah I've got I've not got enough time to do this fired immediately when I worked at a um, s- small uh, Swedish multinational here in in uh, in Gothenburg my uh, my manager really did uh, conform to 
the picture of uh, of a Swedish management style in the sense that she let me get get on with my uh, my tasks and had an overview and would step in if I wandered away from the too far away from uh, from the plan. But she wasn't conscious of that. That was just the way that she uh, went about her work. And and I think if there is a Swedish management style, I would say that. Uh, Swedish managers themselves are, aren't particularly aware of it. They're just this is what they do, and it and it is different. And it it could be useful to hold up a mirror to Swedish um, business and industry to to say you've actually got something here which is a little bit different, and which can be a very effective way of running a modern organisation. Um, and it's worth being more explicitly aware of what that brings to a workplace uh, situation and the positive things that it means in hard-nosed productivity terms, not just in terms of good relationships with employees. That takes us to the end of this week's Sweden in Focus. Thank you for listening. And thank you to David Crouch, Richard Orange and Becky Waterton and this week's special guest, Penilla petrelius Colbeck. Please share your feedback about the podcast in our survey, which you can find in the episode description in your app. And we'll be back again next Saturday. Until then, take care. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.